Hello and welcome to this podcast produced by the Arsenis Parlay Center for Science and the Common Good. My name is Ben Allwine. Today I am joined by Dave Mortensen, Professor of Weed and Applied Plant Ecology at Penn State University. Dr. Mortensen's research at Penn State concerns the sustainability of land resource management with applications toward weed management tactics and the ecology of agricultural fields. Dr. Mortensen's research group has published over 120 scientific papers and book chapters, which have been highlighted in the New York Times and have resulted in Dr. Mortensen giving congressional testimony to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2010. Dr. Mortensen is the scientist on the USDA National Organic Standards Board and today my guest on this podcast. Dave, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, Ben. So can you please first just tell us a little bit about the overall mission of your work as a research scientist and professor? The frame of the work that that I've been pursuing really for most of my career has been to conduct research that helps guide a more sustainable and environmentally friendly agriculture. From the beginning, uh, I remember as a young a young scientist starting out that most all of the initiatives underway in the U.S. U.S. agriculture was to focus on production efficiency, but also focus on um, ways of achieving a reduction in reliance on external inputs. And certainly that was the case with pesticides. And so since herbicides, a kind of pesticide, constitute 80% of all pesticides used in commodity agriculture, I've had a a particular focus on um, ways in which we can make weedy plant management in cropping systems more ecologically sound and take advantage of the ecological processes to um, regulate their success. Dave, what are some of your personal passions that drive what you do, and how have they evolved over time? Well, it, it was it was a particular honor for me to be in, invited to um, participate by the student group here at Ursinus that um, is, is focusing on science serving the common good. I have a passion, really, at the core of my work is that we conduct objective, thoughtful research that at the end of the day has the chance to move science and humanity in a direction that is just and sound for the environment and and economically sustainable. And so um, I love the idea that the focus at Ursinus and it is my focus that we move the science into application and that we give a great deal of thought, ethics, framing the questions we pursue and thinking hard about the impacts that the science that we do uh, has in achieving a more sustainable path forward, a more just path forward. Genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, have attracted a lot of attention in recent years as technologies that have the potential to profoundly shape our world. Uh, can you briefly explain what GMOs are and some of their applications in agriculture? Yes, yeah, so genetically modified organisms, GMOs, are um, organisms where genetic information in the form of genes or 
segments of genes are moved from one organism into another. And in so doing, so it's the, the movement of genes from one organism to another that um, code for a desirable trait in the performance of the transformed organism that that organism otherwise expressed at a very low level or didn't express at all. Let's take a couple of examples of genetic modified organisms, genetic modifications that have really caught on in agriculture. The insertion of the Bacillus thuringiensis gene into crops. This gene codes for the production of a protein in the plants that when consumed by pest insects will lead to the death of those insects. This kind of transformation is referred to in sort of lay jargon as plant-incorporated protectants. The plant, the gene is inserted, the, the plant expresses the production of something that then helps control the pest, plant-incorporated protectants. Today, um, our corn crop, probably something like 75% of the corn that's planted in the United States carries a BT trait in it. Another kind of transformation, it, it still involves the movement of a gene from one organism into another organism, is the movement of genes that code for resistance to a pesticide that would be applied to the crop and otherwise would kill the crop, and that would be herbicide-resistant um, traits. In this case, un unlike in the case of plant-incorporated protectants, you're inserting a gene that blocks the activity of the herbicide in the plant so that the plant takes the herbicide up, but the herbicide's site of action has been altered in a way that the herbicide doesn't bind and disrupt an important biochemical pathway. Therefore, you take a plant that formerly was susceptible to a herbicide and you make it uh, tolerant to that herbicide and Therefore, you can apply the herbicide in a way that would kill the weeds and not the crop. That's the, the general idea. These traits now exist in about 96% of the soybeans that, were, that are planted and in a very large proportion of the cotton that's planted and in the sort of high 70s to low 80% of the corn that's planted carries this trait and the overwhelming most common one is glyphosate or Roundup resistance trait in these crops. Each time these genes are inserted, the owner of the gene actually carries a certain ownership of the seed then. So when you plant the crop that has the glyphosate trait in it, for example, Monsanto, the owner of the gene, has control over how the resulting crop seed that's produced in that field is will be handled and marketed and, and processed. So it's a it's a pretty big change in the way that we think about farming in the sense that genetic material is owned by someone other than the farmer. The other really big change with the herbicide resistant crops is that we and, and I guess I would say broadly of pest management genetically modified traits broadly 
is um, we've seen a, a move, and it's not just a move, we've pretty much taken it to the fullest extent that you could take it of packaging. And the packaging, the idea of packaging is the idea that you, where you formally just owned the pesticide and sold the pesticide as a company like Monsanto would have done. Most of these companies have purchased the seed breeding companies so that they have, they own the gene that goes into the seed, they own the seed, and they own the pesticides that are compatible with the genes that are in the seed. This so-called packaging then plays out, it's an interesting example of where science and technology and the interface of science and technology and the marketplace plays out in maybe sometimes predictable but sometimes unpredictable ways. But imagine now where a farmer used to go out and choose the most, the best adapted crop seed cultivar for their growing region and then would think about the pest management separately. They're buying the seed that has the genes that have been inserted in them that um, end the pesticides all in one package so that the farmer practice then is dictated by the genes that are in the crop seed. And we'll talk in a few minutes about the downside effects of this packaging with respect to environment and, and pest resistance that results from this behavior. So my next question then is that we've heard a little bit about the benefits of using GMOs in agriculture. What are some of the dangers in using genetically modified crops when producing our food? There are several, and we, we wouldn't have to turn very far in a newspaper these days to read about some of the problems we've had just this past summer alone. And, and maybe just let me back up before I dive into something out of context. One of the concerns that I have and that, that, you know, that worries me and that I've spent a great deal of time researching over the years and talking to farmers and spending time debating and help, helping shape policy in Washington, D.C., has been the um, unexpected at least unexpected by a lot of people, outcome that a technology that was designed and marketed with the premise that um, the implementation of the genetically modified trait would reduce reliance on pesticides. In the case, for example, of her, let's take herbicides specifically, 80% of the pesticides that we use in commodity grain crop production are herbicides. Any change in the proportional use of herbicides has a profound effect on the total pesticide load in the environment. We have on the backs of genetically modified crops, so the genetically modified crops have enabled this change, we have increased herbicide use significantly. Let's take a specific crop like soybean. For example, we are now using a third to a half again greater amount of herbicides now than we were in the year that glyphosate-resistant crops were introduced. And our work suggests quite clearly that um, we've only seen the tip of the iceberg on this pesticide use trajectory that we expect based on a number of things uh, that are very likely to come into alignment 
that that herbicide use could actually double to triple. This is, for me, terribly alarming, the thought that, you know, this sort of increase could occur and this sort of increase could occur on the backs of a, of a scientific technology that held out the promise of reducing the reliance on pesticides. Some of some of the folks listening to this might ask the question that I was asked during the congressional testimony: Why should we care if we use the pesticides carefully if we double or triple pesticide use? And um, the reason that we should care is that there are well well worked out um, uh, studies and principles at play here, where we know that when an area treated increases and the amount applied increases, the probability of detects of those compounds increases by a very significant and predictable set of algorithms in unintended places, like, for example, uh, stream water, drinking water pulled from reservoirs, drinking water pulled from, um, from wells, so below ground um, detects of these compounds. And um, that's a, a big reason why we're going to, we, we will be sub- subjected to a much higher frequency of detects in our water that results in us drinking those compounds at, at low concentrations. Another one that worries me is the unintended consequences of not just the the herbicides being seen in water, but of drifting into adjacent fields and damaging the adjacent crops of of farmers growing non-transformed soybeans, uh, conventional farmers growing non-transformed soybeans, or growing transformed soybeans that were transformed with another trait that doesn't confer resistance to the dicamba, in this case herbicide, that would damage those crops. And the other thing that we're concerned about and that we've spent a lot of time studying over the last 8 to 10 years is the potential downside impacts of these of drift on the wild plant community and the role, and therefore dialing down the role that the wild plant community, which we know to be significant, um, plays in provisioning beneficial insects like pollinators and driving and accelerating colony collapse problems. So these are just, they're a handful of, of some of the biggest concerns that, that I have about this. And, and so I, you know, I have been advocating that we move much more carefully with this and, and look with these technologies and look more critically at the existing data that we have Uh, and also have been arguing that we collect additional data before we move ahead with the deregulation of these practices because of the fear that I have and the concern, not just the fear, but the concern that I have for the farming community and for the consuming public that we not make significant mistakes that would have been informed by the data. This summer, we've made a profound mistake at the scale of a nationwide experiment, effectively, that occurred when we allowed these compounds to be used in agriculture and are now just seeing the surface of what uh, looks to be something like 20 million acres of um, soybeans alone. That's not 
including cotton and, and the uh, other non-transformed crops that have been damaged profoundly by drift of these herbicides. We more or less predicted that this would happen several years ago in a number of papers and public comment that I made to EPA on this subject. So I just am a, I'm not a, a total technology skeptic, but I am a person that would argue that we need to be much more careful about how these things um, move into agriculture. What are some alternative strategies we can use to avoid the use of genetic crop modification in controlling weeds on farms? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Ben, because it's one thing to be critical of a, of a, a set of practices and a path forward. It's, it's important that we think, what are the alternatives? Are there tractable alternatives, or are we just sort of dreaming about an alternative that really doesn't exist? And, and we have alternatives. I, I will be the last to argue that these, all of these alternatives just find their way into agriculture and are adopted immediately. But we have functional alternatives that farmers, a, a number of farmers are already doing and are, are really anxious to see a higher level of adoption of and you know, research to underpin this. What, and what do they look like? Cover cropping is a, a beautiful practice that is, in my opinion, the kind of practice that we need to be um, uh, advocating its adoption and um, having helping farmers uh, help each other to see how this practice impacts their their farming systems. What is so beautiful about this that is that it it brings the pest management benefits that would help us dial down the reliance on herbicides. That's a huge plus. But in our region here, uh, where our, sci- our science college is and up where I come from at Penn State, we are in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. That watershed um, is threatened by um, water quality problems. Cover crops are known to help in a very significant way to um, take up excess nitrogen and phosphorus in the soils in ways that have been documented to reduce load, phosphorus and nitrogen loads in the surface waters that run into the Chesapeake Bay. What a beautiful thing to have a multifunctional practice that delivers multiple ecosystem services, pest suppression, nutrient uptake and retention, improving soil quality by adding carbon to the soil, legumes that are fixing nitrogen and on and on. So so there's a practice. Are the farmers doing it? Amazingly, here in the East, where we have decided to do something very progressive, which is that we have provided a market-based incentive payment to help encourage farmers to experiment with and implement cover crops, the states that lie adjacent to the Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania have such market-based incentive payments, and we are leading the country here in cover crop adoption. The cover crop adoption in the eastern United States is, is actually impressively you know, progressing very nicely. We have a lot of work to do in the Midwestern states to, to really move, move this adoption along. Um, we're seeing grower-led initiatives in the formation of regional 
cover cropping councils now. There'll be a, a very exciting meeting up in Ithaca uh, November 7th through 9th. That's all about farmer adoption of this practice of cover cropping and exploring how the interplay between crop rotational diversity and cover cropping, both of which address pest management problems without relying on you know, increasing herbicide use as strategies for, you know, for addressing this resistance problem and this growing reliance on herbicides, which we have to turn around. So those are just a couple of examples of where I think we have shelf-ready technology, uh, and it's really, I, I think it's a agroecology and social systems solution that we're looking for to get, you know, the kind of adoption levels that, you know, that, that I really think we can achieve. Our national discourse around GMOs usually revolves around the personal health consequences of consuming them, as well as our right to be informed of which food in grocery stores has been genetically modified. In your view, what is missing from national conversations in the media, within our government system, and between each other every day? I guess I, I would say that there's several things that are missing. It's my view that, so I'll, I'll just get away from genetically modified organisms for a minute here and say that we have serious challenges to bring about greater food access and access to food that, um, that is healthy for the body. I, I think I would start there, here and internationally. So there are food justice issues that, that I think is where, where I start when I think about a question like that, Ben. When I drill down into that question, you know, I, I then think about the, the interface between agriculture, the farmer's ability to sustain a desired, healthy, vibrant life on the land, uh, while at the same time protecting the environment. Agriculture uses something like 45% of the landscape in our country is, is in an agricultural use of one form or another. And the environmental stewardship that goes along with that land use is critically important in the same way that meeting the food production demands of the country are critically important. And I would like to see us um, have a, a more frank discussion about the impacts of the practices that we use um, on the environment and meeting that food demand. And I certainly you know, have made it pretty clear during the course of this discussion that um, you know, misleading claims about what a technology can do taken out of the context of the social market technology space is not serving anyone well. And we really need to, um, we need to do a lot better at coming up with agroecological solutions that both produce food and protect the environment and make the food available to people, uh, all people. And finally, what steps can we as scientists, students, or citizens take to continue this conversation in our own lives? You know, I, I think, and, and I, I won't be, um, you know, this, this notion that we are, it's more than a notion, it's a reality, that each time we purchase food, we are making a decision about the kind of agriculture we support. I recognize that being up on 
the nuances of how food are produced, having grown up in, in an urban environment, um, and knowing what lots of folks are up against to, to know all the ins and outs of where the food came from, but, but, but making conscious choices about the food that we purchase is something that all citizens can do. During the course of the uh, deregulation decisions on these genetically modified traits like dicamba and 2,4-D resistant crop traits, the EPA saw the largest number of public comments ever on, uh, on those topics. The public engaged. The public made its voice heard. That's something that we all have a role in. So when we're asked to consider contacting an agency or um, a, a government official about a decision that's going to be made, I, I would encourage us all and remind myself to, you know, that we all have a voice and we should all made our voice be heard. I, I think another thing that, you know, that I, that I think about a lot is imagine meeting the food demand, which I know is a theme of, of the seminar series. You know, imagine that I was sitting with the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, last year, and he was lamenting that we as a society in the United States throw 43% of the food that's produced away each day, each year. So we've got to do better than that. I mean, when we think about, you know, can we meet the food demand? Well, let's start by, with some of the simple things like Let's come up with systems, and again, this is social and science interface. This is there are market implications at all, but let's stop throwing things away. Let's um, value the food that you know that's on our plate, and and let's start from there. The decision to purchase what we purchase, let's eat what we purchase, uh, and let's be engaged around the subject of informing decisions about sustainable production systems going forward.